Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me this evening. Two stories tonight by the legendary O. Henry, hugely popular author of some 300 short stories. O. Henry, of whom William Marion Reedy wrote, as a depictor of the life of New York's four million, clubmen, fighters, thieves, policemen, touts, shop girls, lady cashiers, hobos, actors, stenographers, and whatnot, O. Henry had no equal for keen insight into the beauties and meannesses of character or motive. In England, the journal John O'London said, O. Henry was our greatest literary discovery during the Great War. He was medicinal. He distracted us from intolerable things. The Pendulum by O. Henry 81st Street, let him out, please, yelled the shepherd in blue. A flock of citizen sheep scrambled out, and another flock scrambled aboard. Ding, ding! The cattle cars of the Manhattan Elevated rattled away, and John Perkins drifted down the stairway of the station with the released flock. John walked slowly toward his flat. Slowly, because in the lexicon of his daily life there was no such word as perhaps— there are no surprises awaiting a man who has been married two years and lives in a flat. As he walked, John Perkins prophesied to himself, with gloomy and downtrodden cynicism, the foregone conclusions of the monotonous day. Katie would meet him at the door with a kiss flavored with cold cream and butterscotch. He would remove his coat, sit upon a macadamized lounge, and read, in the evening paper, of Russians and Japs slaughtered by the deadly linotype. For dinner there would be pot-roast, a salad flavored with a dressing warranted not to crack or injure the leather, stewed rhubarb, and the bottle of strawberry marmalade blushing at the certificate of chemical purity on its label. After dinner Katie would show him the new patch in her crazy quilt that the Iceman had cut for her off the end of his foreign hand. At half-past seven they would spread newspapers over the furniture to catch the pieces of plastering that fell when the fat man in the flat overhead began to take his physical culture exercises. Exactly at eight, Hickey and Mooney, of the vaudeville team, unbooked in the flat across the hall, would yield to the gentle influence of delirium tremens and begin to overturn chairs under the delusion that Hammerstein was pursuing them with a five-hundred-dollar-a-week contract. Then the gent at the window across the airshaft would get out his flute. The nightly gas leak would steal forth to frolic in the highways. The dumbwaiter would slip off its trolley. The janitor would drive Mrs. Zanowitzki's five children once more across the Yalu, the lady with the champagne shoes and the Sky Terrier would trip downstairs and paste her Thursday name over her bell and letterbox, and the evening routine of the Frogmore Flats would be underway. John Perkins knew these things would happen, and he knew that at a quarter past eight he would summon his nerve and reach for his hat, and that his wife would deliver this speech in a querulous tone. Now, where are you going, I'd like to know, John Perkins? Thought I'd drop up to McCloskey's, he would answer, and play a game or two of pool with the fellows. Of late, such had been John Perkins's habit. At ten or eleven he would return. Sometimes Katie would be asleep, sometimes waiting up, 
ready to melt in the crucible of her ire a little more gold plating from the wrought steel chains of matrimony. For these things Cupid will have to answer when he stands at the bar of justice with his victims from the Frogmore Flats. Tonight John Perkins encountered a tremendous upheaval of the commonplace when he reached his door. No Katie was there with her affectionate, confectionate kiss. The three rooms seemed in portentous disorder. All about lay her things in confusion. Shoes in the middle of the floor, curling tongs, hair bows, kimonos, powder box, jumbled together on dresser and chairs. This was not Katie's way. With a sinking heart, John saw the comb with a curling cloud of her brown hair among its teeth. Some unusual hurry and perturbation must have possessed her, for she always carefully placed these combings in the little blue vase on the mantel to be some day formed into the coveted feminine rat. Hanging conspicuously to the gas-jet by a string was a folded paper. John seized it. It was a note from his wife running thus. Dear John, I just had a telegram saying Mother is very sick. I am going to take the 4.30 train. Brother Sam is going to meet me at the depot there. There is cold mutton in the icebox. I hope it isn't her quinsy again. Pay the milkman fifty cents. She had it bad last spring. Don't forget to write to the company about the gas meter, and your good socks are in the top drawer. I will write tomorrow. Hastily, Katie. Never during their two years of matrimony had he and Katie been separated for a night. John read the note over and over in a dumbfounded way. Here was a break in a routine that had never varied, and it left him dazed. There on the back of a chair hung, pathetically empty and formless, the red wrapper with black dots that she always wore while getting the meals. Her weekday clothes had been tossed here and there in her haste. A little paper bag of her favorite butterscotch lay with its string yet unwound. A daily paper sprawled on the floor, gaping rectangularly, where a railroad timetable had been clipped from it. Everything in the room spoke of a loss, of an essence gone, of its soul and life departed. John Perkins stood among the dead remains with a queer feeling of desolation in his heart. He began to set the rooms tidy as well as he could. When he touched her clothes, a thrill of something like terror went through him. He had never thought what existence would be without Katie. She had become so thoroughly annealed into his life that she was like the air he breathed, necessary but scarcely noticed. Now, without warning, she was gone, vanished, as completely absent as if she had never existed. Of course it would be only for a few days, at most a week or two, but it seemed to him as if the very hand of death had pointed a finger at his secure and uneventful home. John dragged the cold mutton from the icebox, made coffee, and sat down to a lonely meal, face to face with the strawberry marmalade's shameless certificate of purity. Bright among withdrawn blessings now appeared to him the ghosts of pot-roasts and the salad with the tan-polished dressing. His home was dismantled. A quinzied mother-in-law had knocked his lares and panatis sky-high. After his solitary meal, John sat at a front window. 
he did not care to smoke. Outside the city roared to him to come join in its dance of folly and pleasure. The night was his. He might go forth unquestioned, and thrum the strings of jollity as free as any gay bachelor there. He might carouse and wander, and have his fling until dawn if he liked, and there would be no wrathful Katie waiting for him, bearing the chalice that held the dregs of his joy. He might play pool at McCloskey's with his roistering friends until Aurora dimmed the electric bulbs if he chose. The hymenial strings that had curbed him always when the Frogmore Flats had palled upon him were loosened. Katie was gone. John Perkins was not accustomed to analyzing his emotions, but as he sat in his Katie-bereft ten-by-twelve parlor, he hit unerringly upon the key note of his discomfort. He knew now that Katie was necessary to his happiness. His feeling for her, lulled into unconsciousness by the dull round of domesticity, had been sharply stirred by the loss of her presence. Has it not been dinned into us by proverb and sermon and fable that we never prize the music till the sweet-voiced bird has flown, or in other no less florid and true utterances? "'I'm a double-dyed dub,' mused John Perkins, "'the way I've been treating Katie. "'Off every night playing pool and bumming with the boys "'instead of staying home with her. "'The poor girl here all alone with nothing to amuse her, "'and me acting that way. "'John Perkins, you're the worst kind of a shine. "'I'm going to make it up to the little girl. "'I'll take her out and let her see some amusement.' and I'll cut out the McCloskey gang right from this minute. Yes, there was the city roaring outside for John Perkins to come dance in the train of Momus, and at McCloskey's the boys were knocking the balls idly into the pockets against the hour for the nightly game. But no primrose way nor clicking cue could woo the remorseful soul of Perkins the bereft. The thing that was his, lightly held and half-scorned, had been taken away from him, and he wanted it. Backward to a certain man named Adam, whom the cherubim bounced from the orchard, could Perkins the remorseful trace his descent. Near the right hand of John Perkins stood a chair. On the back of it stood Katie's blue shirtwaist. It still retained something of her contour. Midway of the sleeves were fine individual wrinkles made by the movements of her arms in working for his comfort and pleasure. A delicate but impelling odor of bluebells came from it. John took it and looked long and soberly at the unresponsive grenadine. Katie had never been unresponsive. Tears, yes, tears, came into John Perkins's eyes. When she came back, things would be different. He would make up for all his neglect— what was life without her? The door opened. Katie walked in, carrying a little hand satchel. John stared at her stupidly. My, I'm glad to be back, said Katie. Ma wasn't sick to amount to anything. Sam was at the depot and said she had just had a little spell and got all right soon after they telegraphed. So I took the next train back. I'm just dying for a cup of coffee." Nobody heard the click and rattle of the cog-wheels 
as the third-floor front of the Frogmore Flats buzzed its machinery back into the order of things. A band slipped, a spring was touched, the gear was adjusted, and the wheels revolve in their old orbit. John Perkins looked at the clock. It was 8.15. He reached for his hat and walked to the door. Now, where are you going, I'd like to know, John Perkins? asked Katie in a querulous tone. Thought I'd drop up to McCluskey's, said John, and play a game or two of pool with the fellows. A RETRIEVED REFORMATION A guard came to the prison shoe-shop, where Jimmy Valentine was assiduously stitching uppers, and escorted him to the front office. There the warden handed Jimmy his pardon, which had been signed that morning by the governor. Jimmy took it in a tired kind of way. He had served nearly ten months of a four-year sentence. He had expected to stay only about three months at the longest— when a man with as many friends on the outside as Jimmy Valentine had is received in the stir, it is hardly worth while to cut his hair. "'Now, Valentine,' said the warden, "'you'll go out in the morning. Brace up and make a man of yourself. You're not a bad fellow at heart. Stop cracking safes and live straight.' "'Me?' said Jimmy in surprise. "'Why, I never cracked a safe in my life.' "'Oh, no!' laughed the Gordon. "'Of course not. Let's see now. How was it you happened to get sent up on that Springfield job? Was it because you wouldn't prove an alibi for fear of compromising somebody in extremely high-toned society? Or was it simply a case of a mean old jury that had it in for you? It's always one or the other with you innocent victims.' "'Me?' said Jimmy, still blankly virtuous. "'Why, Warden, I never was in Springfield in my life.' "'Take him back, Cronin,' said the warden, "'and fix him up with some outgoing clothes. "'Unlock him at seven in the morning, "'and let him come to the bullpen. "'Better think over my advice, Valentine.' "'At a quarter past seven on the next morning, "'Jimmy stood in the warden's outer office. "'He had on a suit of the villainously fitting ready-made clothes "'and a pair of the stiff, squeaky shoes "'that the state furnishes to its discharged compulsory guests.' The clerk handed him a railroad ticket and the five-dollar bill with which the law expected him to rehabilitate himself into good citizenship and prosperity. The warden gave him a cigar and shook hands. Valentine, 9762, was chronicled on the books, pardoned by Governor, and Mr. James Valentine walked out into the sunshine. Disregarding the song of the birds, the waving green trees, and the smell of the flowers, Jimmy headed straight for a restaurant. There he tasted the first sweet joys of liberty in the shape of a broiled chicken and a bottle of white wine, followed by a cigar of better grade than the one the warden had given him. From there he proceeded leisurely to the depot. He tossed a quarter into the hat of a blind man sitting by the door and boarded his train. Three hours set him down in a little town near the state line. He went to the café of one Mike Dolan and shook hands with Mike, who was alone behind the bar. "'Sorry we couldn't make it sooner, Jimmy, me boy,' said Mike. "'But we had that protest from Springfield to buck against, and the governor nearly balked. Feeling all right?' "'Fine,' said Jimmy. "'Got my key?' 
He got his key and went upstairs, unlocking the door of a room at the rear. Everything was just as he had left it. There on the floor was still Ben Price's collar button that had been torn from that eminent detective's shirt-band when they had overpowered Jimmy to arrest him. Pulling out from the wall a folding bed, Jimmy slid back a panel in the wall and dragged out a dust-covered suitcase. He opened this and gazed fondly at the finest set of burglar's tools in the East. It was a complete set made of specially tempered steel, the latest designs in drills, punches, braces, and bits, jimmies, clamps, and augers, with two or three novelties invented by Jimmy himself in which he took pride. Over nine hundred dollars they had cost him to have made at a place where they make such things for the profession. In half an hour, Jimmy went downstairs and through the café. He was now dressed in tasteful and well-fitting clothes and carried his dusted and cleaned suitcase in his hand. "'Got anything on?' asked Mike Dolan genially. "'Me?' said Jimmy in a puzzled tone. "'I don't understand.' I'm representing the New York Amalgamated Short Snap Biscuit Cracker and Frazzled Wheat Company. This statement delighted Mike to such an extent that Jimmy had to take a seltzer and milk on the spot. He never touched hard drinks. A week after the release of Valentine 9762, there was a neat job of safe burglary done in Richmond, Indiana, with no clue to the author. A scant $800 was all that was secured. Two weeks after that, a patented, improved, burglar-proof safe in Logansport was opened like a cheese to the tune of $1,500 currency, securities and silver untouched. That began to interest the rogue catchers. Then an old-fashioned bank safe in Jefferson City became active and threw out of its crater an eruption of banknotes amounting to $5,000. The losses were now high enough to bring the matter up into Ben Price's class of work. By comparing notes, a remarkable similarity in the methods of the burglaries was noticed. Ben Price investigated the scenes of the robberies and was heard to remark, "'That's Dandy Jim Valentine's autograph. He's resumed business. Look at that combination knob. Jerked out as easy as pulling up a radish in wet weather.' He's got the only clamps that can do it. And look how clean those tumblers were punched out. Jimmy never has to drill but one hole. Yes, I guess I want Mr. Valentine. He'll do his bit next time, without any short time or clemency foolishness. Ben Price knew Jimmy's habits. He had learned them while working up the Springfield case. Long jumps, quick getaways, no Confederates, and a taste for good society— these ways had helped Mr. Valentine to become noted as a successful dodger of retribution. It was given out that Ben Price had taken up the trail of the elusive cracksman, and other people with burglar-proof safes felt more at ease. One afternoon Jimmy Valentine and his suitcase climbed out of the mail hack in Elmore, a little town five miles off the railroad down in the blackjack country of Arkansas. Jimmy, looking like an athletic young senior just home from college, went down the board sidewalk toward the hotel. A young lady crossed the street, passed him at the corner, 
and entered a door over which was the sign, The Elmore Bank. Jimmy Valentine looked into her eyes, forgot what he was, and became another man. She lowered her eyes and colored slightly. Young men of Jimmy's style and looks were scarce in Elmore. Jimmy collared a boy that was loafing on the steps of the bank as if he were one of the stockholders, and began to ask him questions about the town, feeding him dimes at intervals. By and by the young lady came out, looking royally unconscious of the young man with the suitcase, and went her way. "'Isn't that young Polly Simpson?' asked Jimmy, with specious guile. "'Nah,' said the boy. "'She's Annabel Adams. Her pa owns this bank. What did you come to Elmore for? Is that a gold watch chain? I'm going to get a bulldog. Got any more dimes?' Jimmy went to the Planters Hotel, registered as Ralph D. Spencer, and engaged a room. He leaned on the desk and declared his platform to the clerk. He said he had come to Elmore to look for a location to go into business. How was the shoe business now in the town? He had thought of the shoe business. Was there an opening? The clerk was impressed by the clothes and manner of Jimmy. He himself was something of a pattern of fashion to the thinly gilded youth of Elmore, but he now perceived his shortcomings. While trying to figure out Jimmy's manner of tying his foreign hand, he cordially gave information. Yes, there ought to be a good opening in the shoe line. There wasn't an exclusive shoe store in the place. The dry goods and general stores handled them. Business in all lines was fairly good. Hoped Mr. Spencer would decide to locate in Elmore, he would find it a pleasant town to live in, and the people very sociable. Mr. Spencer thought he would stop over in the town a few days and look over the situation. No, the clerk needn't call the boy. He would carry up his suitcase himself. It was rather heavy. Mr. Ralph Spencer, the phoenix that arose from Jimmy Valentine's ashes, ashes left by the flame of a sudden and alterative attack of love, remained in Elmore, and prospered. He opened a shoe store and secured a good run of trade. Socially he was also a success and made many friends, and he accomplished the wish of his heart. He met Miss Annabel Adams and became more and more captivated by her charms. At the end of a year the situation of Mr. Ralph Spencer was this. He had won the respect of the community, his shoe store was flourishing, and he and Annabel were engaged to be married in two weeks. Mr. Adams, the typical plodding country banker, approved of Spencer. Annabel's pride in him almost equaled her affection. He was as much at home in the family of Mr. Adams and that of Annabel's married sister as if he were already a member. One day Jimmy sat down in his room and wrote this letter which he mailed to the safe address of one of his old friends in St. Louis. Dear old pal, I want you to be at Sullivan's place in Little Rock next Wednesday night at nine o'clock. I want you to wind up some little matters for me. And, also, I want to make you a present of my kit of tools. I know you'll be glad to get them. You couldn't duplicate the lot for a thousand dollars. Say, Billy, I've quit the old business. A year ago. I've got a nice store, I'm making an honest living, and I'm going to marry the finest girl on earth two weeks from now. It's the only life, Billy, 
the straight one. I wouldn't touch a dollar of another man's money now for a million. After I get married, I'm going to sell out and go west, where there won't be so much danger of having old scores brought up against me. I tell you, Billy, she's an angel. She believes in me, and I wouldn't do another crooked thing for the whole world. Be sure to be at Sully's, for I must see you. I'll bring along the tools with me. Your old friend, Jimmy. On the Monday night after Jimmy wrote this letter, Ben Price jogged unobtrusively into Elmore in a livery buggy. He lounged about the town in his quiet way until he found out what he wanted to know. From the drugstore across the street from Spencer's shoe store, he got a good look at Ralph D. Spencer. "'Going to marry the banker's daughter, are you, Jimmy?' said Ben to himself, softly. "'Well, I don't know.' The next morning Jimmy took breakfast at the Adamses. He was going to Little Rock that day to order his wedding suit and buy something nice for Annabelle. That would be the first time he had left town since he came to Elmore. It had been more than a year now since those last professional jobs, and he thought he could safely venture out. After breakfast, quite a family party went downtown together. Mr. Adams, Annabelle, Jimmy, and Annabelle's married sister with her two little girls, aged five and nine. They came to the hotel where Jimmy still boarded, and he ran up to his room and brought down his suitcase. Then they went to the bank. There stood Jimmy's horse and buggy, and Dolph Gibson, who was going to drive him over to the railroad station. All went inside the high, carved oak railings into the banking room, Jimmy included, for Mr. Adams's future son-in-law was welcome there. The clerks were pleased to be greeted by the good-looking, agreeable young man who was going to marry Miss Annabel. Jimmy set his suitcase down. Annabel, whose heart was bubbling with happiness and lively youth, put on Jimmy's hat and picked up his suitcase. "'Wouldn't I make a nice drummer?' said Annabel. "'My, Ralph, how heavy it is! Feels like it was full of gold bricks!' "'Lot of nickel-plated shoehorns in there,' said Jimmy coolly, "'that I'm going to return. Thought I'd save express charges by taking them up. I'm getting awfully economical.' The Elmore Bank had just put in a new safe and vault. Mr. Adams was very proud of it, and insisted on an inspection by everyone. The vault was a small one, but it had a new patented door. It fastened with three solid steel bolts thrown simultaneously with a single handle, and had a time lock. Mr. Adams beamingly explained his workings to Mr. Spencer, who showed a courteous but not too intelligent interest. The two children, Mary and Agatha, were delighted by the shining metal and funny clock and knobs. While they were thus engaged, Ben Price sauntered in and leaned on his elbow, looking casually inside between the railings. He told the teller that he didn't want anything. He was just waiting for a man he knew. Suddenly there was a scream or two from the women and a commotion. Unperceived by the elders, May, the nine-year-old girl, in a spirit of play, had shut Agatha in the vault. She had then shot the bolts and turned the knob of the combination as she had seen Mr. Adams do. The old banker sprang to the handle and tugged at it for a moment. "'The door can't be opened,' he groaned. 
The clock hasn't been wound nor the combination set. Agatha's mother screamed again hysterically. Hush, said Mr. Adams, raising his trembling hand. All be quiet for a moment. Agatha, he called as loudly as he could. Listen to me. During the following silence they could just hear the faint sound of the child wildly shrieking in the dark vault in a panic of terror. "'My precious darling!' wailed her mother. "'She will die of fright. Open the door! Oh, break it open! Can't you men do something?' "'There isn't a man nearer than Little Rock who can open that door,' said Mr. Adams in a shaky voice. "'My God, Spencer, what shall we do? That child, she can't stand it long in there.' There isn't enough air, and besides, she'll go into convulsions from fright. Agatha's mother, frantic now, beat the door of the vault with her hands. Somebody wildly suggested dynamite. Annabel turned to Jimmy, her large eyes full of anguish, but not yet despairing. To a woman, nothing seems quite impossible to the powers of the man she worships. Can't you do something, Ralph? Try, won't you? He looked at her with a queer, soft smile on his lips and in his keen eyes. Annabel, he said, give me that rose you are wearing, will you? Hardly believing that she heard him aright, she unpinned the bud from the bosom of her dress and placed it in his hand. Jimmy stuffed it into his vest pocket, threw off his coat, and pulled up his shirt sleeves. With that act, Ralph D. Spencer passed away, and Jimmy Valentine took his place. "'Get back from the door, all of you,' he commanded shortly. He set his suitcase on the table and opened it out flat. From that time on he seemed to be unconscious of the presence of anyone else. He laid out the shining, queer implements swiftly and orderly, whistling softly to himself as he always did when at work. In a deep silence and immovable, the others watched him as if under a spell. In a minute, Jimmy's pet drill was biting smoothly into the steel door. In ten minutes, breaking his own burglarious record, he threw back the bolts and opened the door. Agatha, almost collapsed but safe, was gathered into her mother's arms. Jimmy Valentine put on his coat and walked outside the railings towards the front door. As he went, he thought he heard a faraway voice that he once knew call, Ralph. But he never hesitated. At the door, a big man stood somewhat in his way. "'Hello, Ben,' said Jimmy, still with his strange smile. "'Got around at last, have you? Well, let's go.' I don't know that it makes much difference now. And then Ben Price acted rather strangely. Guess you're mistaken, Mr. Spencer, he said. Don't believe I recognize you. Your buggy's waiting for you, ain't it? And Ben Price turned and strolled down the street. You've been listening to The Pendulum and A Retrieved Reformation by O. Henry. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. That's it for this evening. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe, have a good holiday, all the best.